Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Dr. Susan Love. Dr. Love is a clinical professor of surgery at UCLA. She's the president of the Dr. Susan Love Research Foundation, a founder of the National Breast Cancer Coalition, and an appointee by President Clinton to the National Cancer Advisory Board. Dr. Love is here today on Health Watch to talk about the new fifth edition of Dr. Susan Love's Breast Book, a book the New York Times has called The Bible for Women with Breast Cancer. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Susan Love. Thank you. It's great to be here. So in the beginning of, of the fifth edition of, of Dr. Susan Love's Breast Book, you talk about how your past editions are, are upgrades from the ones before and that this one is actually a full-on paradigm shift. So could you tell us what that means and, and why, that, why that's the case? Well, certainly since the first edition came out in 1990, we've completely changed the way we think about cancer and breast cancer. In 1990, we thought it started in one cell, it got slowly bigger, and eventually it got out. You had to rush in quickly, you had to do a big operation, and um, if you were quick enough and were er found it early enough, you could cure the person. We now, through a lot of molecular biology and basic science, have a different understanding of how, how cancer works. You know, it, it, you need a, a cell, a mutated cell, in order to end up being cancer, but that cell needs to be in a local environment that's egging it on in order for you to have clinical cancer. So many of us are walking around with microscopic or dormant cancer cells that are really doing nothing and causing us no problems. And then if the local environment around the cell or, or in the body changes so that it, it, it's more conducive, then um, you end up with clinical cancer. It's a little bit like, and you can reverse it back again as well. So it's a little bit like taking somebody out of, I, I live in L.A., out of South Central L.A., and the, the drive-by shootings and the, and the gangs and the drugs and putting them out in the country and taking them to Boy Scouts and church and, and whatever, and the same kid with the same DNA can be completely different. Um, you know, there's always going to be somebody who's, bad no matter what, but in general, it's not just, you know, as I like to say, it's not like the cancer cells are Osama bin Laden, they're Timothy McVeigh, they're our own cells that we grew in our own environments. And this gives you a, a whole different perspective in how you think about it. So one early detection comes a little into question. Do you really want to find things if they're dormant and not doing anything? That just leads to overtreatment. So is there a way we can figure out which ones are bad and which ones we really don't have to treat? And then once we, you get an invasive cancer, um, it, can you reverse it? Um, are there things you can do besides the, you know, the slash, burn, and poison that, that we do in the medical profession that might change the outcome? And, and it looks like there are on both fronts. You mentioned early detection, Dr. Love, and I know with some cancers they've, they've discovered that if you discover the cancer earlier, it doesn't necessarily mean better outcomes. So is, is that where the controversy has come in around when women should start getting mammograms? Is that related to this new discovery around dormant cancer cells that may never become cancer? Indeed. Um, you know, the, there's actually um, been some calculations that 30% of the cancers 
found on mammogram would do nothing if you never found them, would go away if you never found them. So um, so it's trying, it, It's the goal is not let's find every single cancer, uh, and you could say the same things about prostate cancer for that matter, but, um, but it has to be let's find the ones that have the potential for causing problems and focus on them. And what we tend to do is try to, you know, is focus on finding and then, and then, um, once we've, we found them, then we, we treat them all the same as if they're all equally dangerous and that n- neither one is true. So I know with prostate cancer, when they find, uh, prostate cancer cells, they don't know, they're not able to distinguish very well whether somebody's going to have the rare, more aggressive form of, of prostate cancer versus the slow-growing cancer that they may live with but not die from. Is that also true with breast cancer, that we're not at the place where once the cancer is identified, we to know whether the person has a, a particularly aggressive form? It is true. Um, I mean, we, we're starting to get that information. There's a very good study out of the University of California, San Francisco, and Thea Tilsey where she was able to tell with DCIS, which is pre-cancer, um, which ones were more likely to go on to become invasive, which ones wouldn't do, you know, would just recur locally but are never going to be a problem. Um, so we're getting closer with a lot of the molecular biology analysis um, that's going on of tumors. Uh, but we're, that's the problem is at the moment we, we know that not all of them are going to be bad, but we don't know which ones. So it ends up being a lot like, you know, screening at the airport. Let's just find everybody who might possibly be a terrorist rather than let's focus, you know, is there a way we could focus in on the right people? And so what do you recommend to, um, I know there isn't an average woman, but what would you recommend in terms of uh, women and self-breast exams and mammograms going forward? Well, actually, um, self-breast exams have never been shown to make a difference in the outcome of breast cancer. So now that's a little bit semantic. Um, when we talk about self-breast exam, we're talking about a formal, what I call almost religious um, experience. It takes a half an hour in four positions. You use the shower cards and the whole bit. Um, you know, obviously if a woman feels something uh, that's abnormal, she needs to get it checked out and she can find her own cancer. But doing it in a very formal, religious, reg- regimented way is not going to make any difference. Um, the cancers that are findable by palpation are findable whether you just are doing the normal poking around we all do um, versus uh, really going on a, on a search and destroy mission. In terms of mammography, it's very clear that mammography after the age of 50 is worthwhile. Um, and uh, under 50, it's very iffy, uh, which is why all the the guidelines came out. We're actually the only country that does mammograms starting at, at 40. Um, and the reason it doesn't, the reason it's a problem in the younger women is be, it's not just because we don't want to do it. It's that the, that their breast tissue is denser. And so the mammograms are less accurate. And in addition, breast cancer is less common. And so you're exposing a lot of people to radiation, and, and the radiation is cumulative. It doesn't, it's not, um, you know, it doesn't go away. 
Um, and so if you start at age 40 and have mammograms every year, that's cumulative radiation without a lot of benefit because of the dense breast tissue and the decreased incidence. And under 40, it's really the risk of the radiation is probably higher than the, the benefit. So the issues are, um, you know, the magic of 50 is really menopause. Um, and at menopause, your breasts stop trying to make milk at a moment's notice, and then your breast tissue turns more to fat. Cancer shows up against fat really well, and, um, and so then it becomes worthwhile. We're talking today with Dr. Susan Love about the fifth edition of Dr. Susan Love's breast book. You're listening to Health Watch. If you'd like to join the conversation, the number is 503-231-8187. It would seem, Dr. Love, that one of the upsides of learning that um, we all potentially have cancer cells that may or may not become cancer is that uh, I would imagine lifestyle uh, interventions could keep a cancer cell from becoming uh, actual clinical cancer. Uh, could Indeed, you could yeah. you talk about and, that and, with breast and cancer? And we have, you know, we have data that exercise both um, is good at prevention, at reducing breast cancers from coming in the first place, and also at um, reducing recurrences. And we, we've known this for a while. We've got good data, but we didn't quite know why. And this gives us a context in which to think about how that might, how that might work. Um, obesity, being overweight, increases your chances of recurrence and your chances of getting breast cancer. So, um, again, uh, you know, exercise, losing weight so that, and having a, a more healthy lifestyle and then stress, you know, for a long time, people come up to me and say, oh, does stress cause cancer? And I was always somewhat disdainful at saying, no, it can't cause mutated cells. How can that be? But now with this new understanding, um, stress certainly changes the environment through your whole body and, um, I often, I, I bumped into somebody the other day at the farmer's market who said to me, well, I had a mastectomy 20 years ago, and the cancer just came back in my scar. And um, how can that be? And I said, well, what's been going on in your life lately? Oh, I had the most stressful year of my life. You know, my, my mother ended up having to go into a nursing home, um, and I had to quit my job to take care of her, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, well, that's what happened. Those cells were there for 20 years, dormant. And then with this huge stress, um, that woke them up. But the good news is, if something can wake them up, they could go back to sleep again. <laughs> so um, absolutely, lifestyle issues, it gives us a context. We always suspected that these lifestyle issues were somehow involved with cancer, but this gives us a context in which to understand it. Well, you mentioned both exercise and weight. Are there any specific foods that either have been shown with good research to be culprits or, or benefits in prevention? And you noticed I, 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 I didn't mention foods. And the reason is, although we've had a number of very large, well-designed studies, we have not been able to find a culprit in a food, be it fat or to show, you know, high fruits and vegetables are good, or to show a specific food is good or bad. And um, it, it's, it seems that whenever these studies are done, and, and granted, um, you know, there's always multifactorial, but it does seem that weight is more important than what you eat. 
So it's the people who lose weight um, who, in fact, have the lower risk as opposed to um, exactly what they're eating. You mentioned a couple things that seemed intriguing. I'm guessing they probably don't have enough research to be uh, conclusive, but you mentioned something about soy and in and, and children, and I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, soy is very interesting, and it's a good example of why um, it's not a, we, we have to be careful about extrapolating data from um, animals to people because, um, in fact, uh, in animals, it's really clear that um, people who, who that if you give a high soy diets to rats or to mice, um, you increase recurrence of breast cancer, you increase metastases, um, and, it's a, um, and, and it's not a good thing, and it acts like an estrogen. And so we've assumed um, that that must be true in people as well, and for a long time we told women, particularly women who were on tamoxifen or who had hormone-positive tumors, you can't have soy, you know, stay away from it, it's, it's bad and evil. And then they did a very large study um, in Japan where women uh, were in women with hormone-positive tumors who were taking tamoxifen and not, and uh, based on how much soy they, looking at how much soy they ate. And the women who had a lot of soy in their diets actually had less recurrences than the women who didn't. So um, soy is not a plant estrogen. It's a selective estrogen receptor modulator, which is similar to, that's what tamoxifen is as well, and um, it, it, it acts like estrogen in some organs, it blocks estrogen in other organs, and it can go both ways. Um, in some organs, um, depending on who it's hanging out with, it'll act like estrogen, and then if, if there's a blo- estrogen blocker around, it'll actually block estrogen. So we have to be really careful about, um, especially in foods, about extrapolating from animal data to people data. That's very fascinating. Uh, I, you have a really great section in the breast book called Understanding Risk. And I, and I know in my practice, not just with breast cancer, but with anything where you're looking at statistics, it's really easy to manipulate data so that you can put across a certain argument. And it's often very confusing for patients to figure out what their actual risk is. Can you talk about how you sort that out with patients in breast cancer? Yeah, you know, and this is true of, of your risk of getting it, and it's also true of your risk of um, of having it come back again. Um, I think um, we all we we all get sort of confused with the with the numbers. You know, when we say things like um, one in eight women are going to get breast cancer in their lifetime. That means you have to live up to um, your late 80s, and nothing else has killed you along the way. So of the women who make it all the way through, then um, uh, then a percentage of them will get breast cancer. But a lot of us will die of other things along the way, and um, and the breast cancer becomes less less of an issue. So I think one is you've got to you know you've got to put it all in context. Um, that a lot of other things, it depends somewhat on your age. You know, we often oversimplify and say, well, heart disease kills more women than breast cancer. And that's true, but it kills them. It, the women um, are at an older age. So, so breast cancer is more of a premature um, disease. 
So uh, you, you have to match up some of these things. And then in terms of when you're diagnosed, um, we will standardly say um, if you take this chemotherapy, for example, uh, you'll reduce your chances of recurrence by 30%. Well, that's a, that's a lot, and that sounds pretty exciting, um, until you realize that it depends on what your chance of recurrence is. So if your chance of recurrence is, um, let's say, uh, 60%, a third of that is 20, 60 minus 20 is 40, so you'll go from a chance of having it come back of 60% to 40%. That may be worth it, but if your chance of recurrence is 3%, um, a third of that is 1%, you'll go from 3% to 2%, that may not be worth it. And right. so I think it's really important for, for women to, when you're making decisions, particularly if you're making decisions about um, uh, treatments or screening, to pay attention to, you know, what really are we talking about and what really is the risk. And, and that can be um, much more complex than you think. And one of the areas where I think a lot of uh, fear comes in is around family history. I know that your risk goes up quite a bit if you have a family member with breast cancer, but then you also present the statistic that 70% of people uh, who are breast cancer victims have no actual known risk factors. Exactly. And, and you know, what that says is instead of focusing on the, the and we, we've been looking at the same risk factors for a long time, um, uh, and over and over again. But the majority of women who get breast cancer have done everything right and have absolutely no risk factors, which means we have no idea what causes breast cancer. And there's something big that we're missing. And in fact, we have, through my nonprofit foundation, launched the Love Avon Army of Women, where we're recruiting a million women around the country with and without breast cancer who are willing to be in studies to figure out the cause. Because, you know, a lot of effort and money has been raised for finding the cure. We are a little doing a little better there, but we really have no idea of what causes breast cancer and how to prevent it. And, you know, in the same sort of time frame, certainly in my professional lifetime, we've gone from not having a clue what caused cancer of the cervix to having a vaccine. And there's no reason we shouldn't be able to do that for cancer of the, the breast as well. Um, it, could, it could be a virus. I wouldn't be at all shocked. Um, or it could be something in the environment. But, but let's look. Let's, you know, as opposed to putting all our energies into adding yet more drugs into treatment, let's see if we can, if we could find the cause and, and vaccinate or prevent it, that would be all better. And, and how do you approach counseling women with regards to risk and hormone exposure? I know with, we've had a lot of news about the hormone replacement therapy, but there's also the bioidentical hormones and then the issue also around birth control. Uh, how do you sort out all of that information for someone who's concerned about minimizing the risk? Well, the birth control has not been shown to increase the risk. Part of that is probably because it's given to women at a much younger age. So if you do a study of 20-year-olds who are the ones who, who basically have been on birth control, then um, their risk is not that high. So even if you doubled that risk, it's still not that high, and you would need a, a really big study to even show that. So that turns out, and the other thing about birth control is the hormone levels are about what you would be, have anyway. 
Um, they're not uh, a lot higher or something like that. That what I worry a little bit about is women who are taking birth control pills in their late 40s, um, early 50s, because now you're at an age where breast cancer is much more common. And just in the same way that pregnancy increases breast cancer risk if you're older and not if you're younger, um, I think there's the risk of birth control pills or fertility drugs, for that matter, doing a similar thing that, that have not been really well studied in that age group. In terms of hormone replacement therapy, there's really no data suggesting that it's safe in any way. Um, it, it's the, the most recent study that just came out. You know, there was a, some hypothesis that, well, if you started taking them immediately when you were going through menopause, then it might be okay. And, and the recent data showed that even that was not the case. And there's no reason to think bioidenticals are any safer than non-bioidenticals. Have there been any studies on bioidentical hormones? There have hormones? been a few. So in France, where they use much more of a variety of hormones, um, they have looked both at, at, at progesterone and um, uh, at, um, variants of estrogen and, and, and still show an increased risk. And, and certainly in your own body, um, if you're postmenopausal, your your natural levels of estrogen and testosterone predict breast cancer risk. So the higher the levels that you make yourself, um, the higher your risk, and you can't get much more bioidentical than that. Um, the other thing is, it's probably even more complicated than that. We have we do a lot of research on the breast itself and trying to understand, uh, you know, what the normal breast does and when you're not making milk. And one of the interesting things is it's capable of making progesterone and estrogen, looks like, in the breast. So the precursors are still made by, by your ovaries or your adrenal glands, but then peripherally in the breast itself, you may be able to have higher levels than you might see in the blood or think you have. So I think it's a complicated issue, but certainly as a postmenopausal woman, I would not um, tr- go take any of those hormones, and I am very nervous about the bioidenticals. Um, um, I don't think they're any safer. So you have a whole section on, on how to uh, have prevention when you've already had uh, breast cancer and you want to prevent recurrence. Is there a, a different strategy in terms of lifestyle and diet and, and what else? The other things that you do as interventions to lower your risk once well, you've already had breast cancer? You know, some of it is similar to some of the uh, of the prevention from getting it in the first place in the sense that, you know, what you want to do is make an environment that is not, um, you know, uh, pushing cancer cells along. It's very interesting of all the cancer cells that get out of the breast and get only about 2% actually arrive at another organ, first of all. Um, then most of them, 98% of those, go to sleep and are dormant. And they'll stay dormant, and you could die at 95 of a stroke with dormant breast cancer cells in your left hip or your liver and never know it. And that's fine. I mean, as long as it's not bothering you, you don't really care. So how do you, so the real question becomes, how do you keep them dormant? And it goes back to stress reduction, um, uh, exercise, weight loss, um, alcohol in moderation, uh, things that um, we know but um, tend to sort of uh, poo-poo. 
Um, there are drugs as well, certainly the hormonal drugs, tamoxifen, the aromatase inhibitors don't kill cells. They change the environment around the cells, and they can reduce your chances of, of recurrence as well. But it, it's, it, it's um, I, you know, exercise, stress reduction, and weight loss. So get a group of friends together and walk every day. Um, do a vigorous walk every day, and you probably could hit all three, and you're more likely to do it because you've got those friends waiting for you. So if we have listeners today who are interested in learning more about your foundation or about the Army of Women, where should we point them? And do you have some websites that people yep, should know about? Yeah, they should go to, we need them to sign up at armyofwomen.org. And we're not going to collect a lot of information from you. You're really signing up for an email list. And then scientists come to us with their research, and if we think it's worthy, we e-blast it out to everybody in the Army. So we don't try to match the study to the person, because even though the study might take place in San Francisco and you live in Oregon, you might have a sister who lives in San Francisco. So every time we send them out, they get virally sent out further. And uh, we've, in two years, we've put 44,000 women on, on research. And this is research to find the cause. Um, this isn't drug research. Um, and, we, and 80% of the Army, it's now 350,000 women, 80% of them do not have breast cancer. And this is really critical because if we don't compare the women who don't have it to the women who have it, we're never going to figure it out. You know, there's something missing. There's some big ideas that are missing, and we need to find them. And I think it's going to take all of us working together and participating together for us to do that. And do you have any final thoughts for women listening today who either are concerned about their risk or uh, want to find out more? Well, uh, obviously they can go buy the book, Dr. Susan Love's Breast Book, in the fifth edition. They can go to the Dr. Susan Love Research Foundation website, um, I think that the critical thing is to realize that science, you know, when we get diagnosed with something, we think that we want our doctors to have the truth and we want the answer. And what we sometimes forget is that research is an ongoing process and that things change as we learn new things. So the, the, the notions that we were brought up on with the early detection and with the, you know, the more treatment, the better, um, may not be um, imp- right anymore. And hopefully we'll do more research and we'll get to a point where breast cancer just doesn't happen anymore and it goes down in history. Well, it's a pleasure having you on Health Watch today, Dr. Love. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. We were talking today with Dr. Susan Love about the fifth edition of her book, Dr. Susan Love's Breast Book. Uh, if you've missed part of today's program, later today or tomorrow, you can go to kboo.fm backslash healthwatch and listen to the show in its entirety as well as other shows from the past. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine.